Let me, uh, let me open us in prayer. Father, thank you for uh, this chance to consider how it is that you have uh, taught us to, to function together as a church, the benefits and blessings of that, uh, the ways in which we hold one another accountable. I uh, thank you for the health of our denomination and pray that you would continue to, uh, to grant that health in the years to come, even until Christ returns. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, like I said, we're going to need every bit of our time today. Uh, and so what we're going to do uh, is kind of two parts today. We're gonna, uh, I want to do a quick refresher on how we're structured as a denomination. How do things work for us? Uh, what we call polity. Uh, it, it, we, what we can't do today is, uh, is instruct you in polity uh, if you are new to all of this. It's going to come like a tidal wave here for the next five minutes or so, and you're not going to feel probably any better uh, instructed than you were before. But for those of you who have heard it before, who have some understanding, I'm, I'm hoping it'll be a good reminder uh, in order to really catch you up if you're, you're not a part of uh, the, the PCA, uh, haven't been for a while, uh, if you're coming out of uh, like a Baptist tradition, we would probably need to spend a few weeks uh, covering our polity and how it works in order to really help you begin to understand. But I do want to quickly remind you how those things work. And then what we're going to do is, uh, is we're going to walk through the work of our General Assembly this year. Uh, my, my reason for doing this uh, is, is a couple of things. Uh, I want you to know how important it is that we belong to a denomination in which authority, responsibility, accountability to the Word of God exist, uh, not only at the local church level, but, uh, but regionally in what we call our presbytery and nationally as a part of the denomination. I also want to keep you up to date on at least an annual basis uh, with respect to the health of our denomination. Denominations, uh, they, they err. And, uh, and they even abandon the faith, unfortunately. We've seen that in history. And, uh, and though God has been kind and the PCA has not uh, abandoned the faith, we are not immune to that possibility. And so uh, it's important that particularly your, your pastors and ruling elders participate at the presbytery level, at the assembly level, uh, so that what, what ends up happening in our denomination is incremental corrections over time rather than it drifting so far that those corrections become difficult or even impossible and the denomination is lost. And so uh, I, I want you to know where we stand, at least from my perspective. And uh, Jay is teaching the middle schoolers, but JD is here. He was at the assembly. I've invited him to chime in as often as he likes this morning. Uh, so you'll get his perspective as well. Um, it's, I think it's important if our denomination is beginning to stray that you, you hear that from us. Uh, and it, we, we not, uh, what I don't want to do is for several years or five years or ten years watch the denomination increasingly stray from the truth to the point that the session has to come in, in here and recommend to you that we leave the PCA. And it's the first you've heard of any problems uh, I hope we never have to do that uh, if we will continue as we have for the last few years. I'm confident we won't have to do that. Uh, but I want you to either be encouraged by the state of the denomination or aware of the fact that, uh, that there are problems. And so that's why I, I uh, am determined to do this every year after our General Assembly in the summer. Okay, 
Uh, let me talk to you quickly again about our denomination and how things work. Our denomination is structured around three courts and two offices uh, and a constitution that, uh, that defines uh, what these things are and how they function. Uh, our three courts. So the, we, as you know, we are not a congregational church here. Uh, our form of government is Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism is, uh, is that the, the local church is ruled by a group of men who are identified as meeting the biblical qualifications. They're prepared, equipped, examined, and then elected by you, the, the congregation, to serve in the role of ruling elder. Uh, or you, you call us, like uh, you have Nathan and I, to be ministers in the congregation. Together we form what is called the session. That felt like a very superhero thing, like Wonder, Wonder Twins activate. Um, together we are. Um, and so, uh, but the, the pastors and the ruling elders together are the session. All of us actually are elders. Uh, we, uh, Nathan and I are what are referred to as teaching elders. Uh, your ruling elders uh, are elders as well. And though there are a couple of distinctions that we make in our polity, uh, particularly around the sacraments, uh, and, uh, and what is permitted there between those two uh, groups, ruling elders and teaching elders. Generally, we talk about what's called the parity of elders. That is that, uh, that Pastor Nathan and I don't have more authority than your ruling elders do. Each of us has a voice and a vote when we gather together as a session uh, to, uh, to uh, lead and manage and shepherd the church. So, we have these two offices, teaching elder, ruling elders, one office, the parity of elder, uh, and then we have the office of deacon. Uh, deacon is at the local church level, and they are focused particularly on the physical and fiscal needs of the congregation. Uh, and you can go into like Acts 6 to get a sense for where that role came from in the church, that office, why it's necessary, why it's an important office. So we have these two offices, and then we have these three courts. At the local church level, that court is the session. Uh, now, we call them courts because, in part, they do engage in church discipline. Uh, they engage in judicial work. That's not all they do. In fact, we, we hope that's not even most of what they do. Uh, they shepherd, they govern, they lead. Uh, the session at the local level. Then we're also uh, part of a regional body which is referred to as the Presbytery. Our Presbytery is called the Nashville Presbytery. And it's actually all of Middle Tennessee and part of southwestern Kentucky. So all the churches in that geography, we belong together. Your session at the local church level meets monthly for the most part. We might take a month off in the summer. We usually don't meet in December, but otherwise we're meeting on a monthly basis. Uh, and the Presbytery, that regional group of churches, meets once a quarter. Uh, we can also call special meetings, and we usually do, so the Presbytery will meet typically about six times in a year. Uh, but the Presbytery uh, is made up of all of the pastors in that Presbytery. And then each church is also allowed to send ruling elders as commissioners to each Presbytery meeting. And how many we're allowed to send depends on how big a church we are. For All Saints, we are allowed to send two ruling elders, and your ruling elders have been very faithful to attend Presbytery. We, uh, I think, uh, since we had our own session, that which started in 2018, 
Uh, I think we've, there's been one presbytery meeting, one regular presbytery meeting, where we didn't have our full contingent that we were allowed to bring. So your ruling elders have been very faithful on that. Uh, and then the third court of the church is the General Assembly, which meets once a year. That's the entire denomination. Every teaching elder, every pastor in the denomination, uh, has the, the privilege of attending uh, and participating. And then again, we also as a church are allowed to send ruling elders to represent the congregation. Again, we, based on our size, are allowed to send two. And uh, for the last several years, we have. Uh, J.D. and J. Hollis uh, have been our, our ruling elder commissioners to the General Assembly. So we've got these three courts. These three courts, uh, they don't function entirely separately. One of the things they do is serve as courts of appeal. So um, you are under the authority of the session. That's what we call your court of original jurisdiction. Uh, if you were accused of sin and it was necessary for uh, the church to call you to repentance, the court of the church that has not only the, the responsibility to do that, but is the only court that can do that, is your session here at All Saints. And that's uh, by reason of your membership here at All Saints. Uh, you also then have the right of appeal uh, with respect to the judgments of your session. You would appeal to the presbytery. Uh, and if you don't believe presbytery gets it right, you have the, the right of a, a final appeal to what is effectively our Supreme Court. And that's our General Assembly through its standing judicial commission, right? Uh, Pastor Nathan and I, it works a little differently. Our court of original jurisdiction is the presbytery. We're actually not members of all saints in a, a formal sense. Our membership is in the Nashville Presbytery. So the session here can't actually bring charges against Nathan and I and try us uh, with respect to sin. If they become aware of something, or anyone else does, it's to be reported to the National Presbytery. And the National Presbytery calls us to account. Uh, if we believe that the Presbytery gets it wrong, then we as pastors have the right of appeal to the SJC at the denominational level, the Standing Judicial Commission. So that's, that's how some of that organization works. Uh, the, the, what governs all of this is our Constitution. Uh, the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America is the Book of Church Order uh, and the Westminster Standards. Uh, these things together, so the, the Confession, the Larger Catechism, the Shorter Catechism, and our Book of Church Order, that's the Constitution. The Book of Church Order are, uh, are the white pages in this binder. This is the, the binder, if somebody's using a physical copy of the BCO, this is usually what you'll see is this blue binder. And in it, most of it are these white pages. Uh, and the book of church order then is kind of, that, those are the rules that govern how we function. Uh, the book of church order is divided into three parts. The first part describes just our, our sort of daily functions, right? Uh, it defines our offices of elder and deacon, ruling elder, teaching elder. Uh, it defines our courts. It, it talks about what the responsibilities of those courts are and how they function together. Uh, sort of, if everything's going well, these are the rules. The second part of our book of church order are the rules of discipline. 
uh, if, whether a session or a presbytery, needs to actually call someone to repentance, this is how we do it. And the rules of discipline are designed, just like in our civil uh, judicial system, to make sure that we get at the truth, we get at a, a just result, but we do so protecting the rights of the accused. Uh, and then the third part of our book of church order, are, uh, that's the, uh, the, the section that talks about our, our understanding and convictions with respect to worship. Now that third part is not constitutional. In other words, we're not required uh, to, to do everything according to what's stated in the book of, uh, of worship, directory of worship. Uh, there are m multiple chapters in the directory of worship, and we have made three of those chapters constitutional. And those are the chapters with respect to the sacraments. And then there's a chapter on marriage, uh, and we've made one paragraph constitutional in that chapter, and that's the paragraph with respect to marriage being between one man and one woman. So that's a, a little bit of a, an introduction to our, uh, our standards. It's Westminster and the Book of Church Order. We also have some rules uh, in, uh, that are included in the binder called the Rules of Assembly Operation. So when we gather together each year for the assembly, the RAO describes how that meeting must be conducted. Uh, and so that's not a part of our Constitution, but they are rules we've agreed to abide by. Yeah, J.D. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, all of it is, is, that's right. And that's very helpful. Thank you, J.D., for reminding us that. Uh, that uh, it's, uh, yeah, Scripture's not a part of our Constitution. Our entire constitutional structure submits to God's Word, and we don't consider it a part of the Constitution because constitutions can and, frankly, ought to be amended at times, and, uh, and that's certainly not an option with Scripture. Uh, and so our biblical structure, as it's described in these documents, uh, our theology, uh, all of it helps hold us together and, uh, and hold us accountable to the truth and to righteousness. And so our responsibility as elders is twofold in this system. One is to function with integrity at the local church level, uh, to, uh, as elders leading the church, to do so consistent with God's word and the way that, that scripture has been uh, understood and described in our confessional standards and, uh, and in the book of church order. And also, uh, our responsibility as officers is to participate in the courts of the church, uh, to hold one another accountable and make sure that the church continues uh, in faithfulness. Okay, I'm going to pause real quick. Questions so far? that was either crystal clear to you or you're so hopelessly lost that you don't expect me to be able to fix that uh, with a question and an answer. Um, okay, so uh, let's talk about General Assembly then. Uh, so General Assembly is the annual meeting of the entire denomination. Uh, <clears throat> this is the way that our denomination gets work done at the denominational level. We're not, like the Southern Baptists, uh, merely joined 
to one another at the denominational level cooperatively. That's certainly one of the things we do, and it's one of the strengths of a denomination is that we are able to work together as a denomination to accomplish things that All Saints, for example, could never accomplish on its own. So there's a, a cooperative element there. Uh, but that's where it ends for a denomination like the Southern Baptist Church. That's the only sense in which they're joined to one another cooperatively. But for us, uh, our, our connectionalism at the regional, that is Presbytery, and the national level, the General Assembly denomination, our connectionalism includes authority. Uh, so as a local church, we are under the authority of the Presbytery and, uh, and furthermore under the authority of the assembly. There's an accountability structure there. But particularly with respect to the cooperative work that we do, we have organized that work under a series of committees and agencies. And so uh, we have permanent committees, an administrative committee, uh, as the name implies, that manages the administration of the denomination year-round. Uh, we have program committees like uh, the Committee on Discipleship Ministries. So that, uh, that's the, uh, for those of you who may have been raised Southern Baptist, that's our version of the Southern Baptist Sunday School Board or whatever it is they call it today, right? Uh, CDM is, uh, is working to put out materials for churches in the denomination to use for Sunday school and, and other discipleship ministries. We have Mission to the World that handles our foreign missions. Mission to North America, which is focused primarily on church planting. Uh, and also, I think our military chaplaincy falls under MNA. Uh, RUF, which you know we pray for regularly here, that's our Reformed University Fellowship, which is our campus ministry. Uh, all of those things are, are happening in the world day in and day out, and there is a permanent committee that oversees that work. That permanent committee consists of uh, teaching and ruling elders who serve on that permanent committee for usually three-year terms. Uh, so the entire General Assembly, one of the things we'll talk about in a minute, uh, the entire General Assembly votes every year. Uh, there's a nominating committee that brings recommendations, and we vote and we populate these permanent committees and agencies with men to serve three-year terms to oversee those works throughout the year. We have some agencies as well, Covenant College, Covenant Theological Seminary, uh, the, uh, the PCA uh, Foundation, which manages uh, charitable giving, uh, usually through like estate planning and things like that. Uh, Geneva is the name of the agency that manages the ministerial retirement uh, and benefits. Uh, Ridgehaven is our camp. We refer to these as agencies because they are actually separately incorporated. Uh, these are, are separate corporations that have been set up to accomplish that work. We've got some special committees. Um, we're, we're Presbyterians. There's lots of committees, right? So there's a committee on constitutional business, right? In other words, anytime anybody wants to do something, uh, particularly something that would amend our Constitution, it first goes through the CCB so they can advise us as a denomination. If you make this change, will it create problems 
Will it create inconsistencies in the Constitution? So that's what CCB does. They, they answer the question, is this constitutional? Will this create problems? Uh, the Cooperative Ministries Committee, as you can imagine, in a denomination uh, that we're not a big denomination. We'll talk about numbers in a minute. But we are big enough that it can be unwieldy. And we've got all these committees and agencies out there doing all kinds of work. Uh, is there anything or anyone kind of holding it all together to make sure everybody knows what everybody's doing? Uh, in terms of being efficient in the work, that's what the Cooperative Ministries Committee does. It's made up of the, the people who lead all of these committees and agencies all form a committee together. Uh, the uh, Interchurch Relations Committee, uh, the PCA is not a denomination that believes we are the only true church on earth. We are, are glad to acknowledge that there are other faithful denominations out there, and we are in relationship with those denominations in order to get work done in the world. Uh, and that work is overseen by our Interchurch Relations Committee. Uh, we have a nominating committee that gathers every spring. It receives all the nominations from all the presbyteries, with respect to men who have been nominated to serve on these permanent committees and agencies. And we've, we go through, uh, I've served on nominating committee, we go through and make sure that they're, they're qualified, right? There are rules about who can serve and when and how often and how, how many committees, so we're making sure there's nothing that disqualifies them. We're looking at their qualifications and the nominating committee then chooses a, a man and recommends that man to the assembly. Uh, the RPR committee, our review of presbytery records. Presbyteries have to keep careful minutes of all the work we do. Uh, those minutes, there are 88 presbyteries in the PCA. Those minutes are submitted on an annual basis to the RPR committee. I served on RPR this year. Uh, the RPR committee actually carefully reads all the minutes of all the presbyteries. And we're reading them looking for things that the presbytery may have done in violation of our Constitution. And we make a list of those things, and we discuss those things as a committee, the RPR committee, and we produce a report to the General Assembly of all of the things that were done wrong. And generally, uh, and it's everything, we, everything from typos, which we, we report just back to the stated clerk of the Presbytery, it's not a big deal, to relatively significant violations of the Constitution, which we call uh, exceptions of substance. When we cite a presbytery with an exception of substance, they have the following 12 months to report back to us and answer for it. So an answer might sound like uh, presbytery agrees, we made a mistake, we won't do that again, here's what we did to fix what we did wrong. Or the presbytery may respond and say, we disagree. We don't believe that's a mistake. You overlook this on page, you know, 472, or, uh, you know, we, we, dis, we, we interpret the rule differently than you do. And this can go back and forth for two or three years. If, if the assembly continually finds those answers unsatisfactory, they can ultimately cite the presbytery to appear before our Supreme Court, the SJC. And the court will adjudicate the problem, right? So that's what RPR does. Uh, we have a theological examining committee uh, for those who are called to serve on our permanent committees and agencies uh, that are ordained um, and will be serving in an ordained way. Um, a couple of other committees, and we'll be done with this. There's an overtures committee. 
Uh, all of the presbyteries and under certain circumstances, the sessions in the PCA have the privilege of submitting requests to the assembly. These requests, most of them consist of amendments to the Constitution. Uh, they believe they've found some problem in our Constitution uh, where something's not stated clearly or maybe it's an unhelpful rule. And so they will craft an amendment to the Constitution, to the BCO usually, and they'll send that recommendation up as an overture. There, there's other things that can be done by overture. If a presbytery believes it's too big and it's ready to divide and, into two presbyteries, that's done by overture. Uh, multiply, not divide. We multiply positive language. Um, the, uh, uh, or if, um, as you'll see when we talk about this year's overtures, uh, if, if a presbytery believes that a nomination should make some statement publicly, uh, then they will draft that statement and send it up as an overture and ask the assembly to approve that statement so that the PCA speaks to an issue publicly. All of that comes up through overtures, and most of those overtures go to the overtures committee that meets the week of the assembly. Uh, the SJC, our Standing Judicial Commission, our Supreme Court, I've talked about already. Uh, last thing, and follow me here, these permanent committees and agencies that I described earlier, MTW and RUF, and at the assembly every year, they produce a report of their work the previous year, and they include in that report the minutes of their meetings. And the assembly, creates temporary shadow committees. It, these committees will meet for an hour or two, uh, and they will receive the report of that permanent committee and agency. So let's use RUF as an example. The director of RUF uh, will, on behalf of the permanent committee of RUF, make a report on that committee's work. And he makes that report initially to a committee that we call a committee of commissioners. And so there's an RUF permanent committee and there's an RUF committee of commissioners. And they all meet together and the committee of commissioners oversees, they, they exercise what's called review and control of that permanent committee. And then they, the committee of commissioners, report to the assembly on that committee's work. Either saying, RUF's done a great job this year, we found no concerns, we checked their minutes, everything's good, they're doing what we asked them to do. Or uh, they will say to the assembly, we have concerns. We have concerns about the RUF committee and the work that it's done this year or hasn't done, or we, we asked them to do something last year and they didn't do it. Uh, this is how we, we exercise review and control because our committees, we don't serve our permanent committees and agencies, they serve us. We tell them what to do and they go do it. And so there needs to be some kind of accountability for that, and that's how we do it, through these committees of commissioners. Okay, you need to know all of that because all of these committees meet in advance of the assembly. Some of them meet weeks in advance. Some of them, the assembly starts Tuesday night. Some of them meet on Monday and Tuesday of the week of assembly. But the general assembly, very simply, is structured like this. We gather together and we hear reports from all these committees. And these committees are making recommendations to us and we're debating those recommendations and voting on them. That's the entire assembly. 
Uh, and as I said, it starts Tuesday night, and we're usually done sometime late Thursday. We're scheduled to go through lunch on Friday in case we need that time, but we haven't needed that time in, in, quite, some, in quite a while. So, um, okay, I'm ready to start talking about this year's assembly, but I want to pause. Are there any questions about how the assembly's organized? So, again, the assembly is a series of committee reports with recommendations, which we debate and vote on. And how all that works is governed by the rules of assembly operations. Okay, the RAO. Okay, let's talk about this year's... Yeah, good question. It's, it's not held in the same place every year. There's a host presbytery. Sometimes several presbyteries that are right located together will come together to jointly host an assembly. Generally, the way it works is a presbytery will offer to host, usually two, three, four years in advance, uh, or the administrative committee, the AC, and the stated clerk of the denomination may also, it's, it's, the, it's just like any other sort of volunteer thing. We're, as a denomination, we're hoping somebody will volunteer, but we're also out there knocking on doors. So the stated clerk is reaching out, hey, would you guys be willing to host in 2025, right? We're looking for a city that's capable of hosting us, um, you know, has a, a convention center that is, uh, is large enough with hotels and restaurants nearby that can support us during the assembly. Um, we made the mistake as an assembly of meeting in a union city uh, years ago and it was a wreck, it would cost us a fortune. Uh, and so the assembly, the denomination has decided we will not ever meet in another uh, city that is, is organized around unions. Uh, literally, we couldn't move chairs during the assembly uh, because that's union work and you're, you're, you're taking a union person's job if you move chairs around. It was an absolute disaster. We won't ever do that again. And so, um, but yeah, generally it's, it's Presbyteries volunteering and or being volunteered. So Nashville hosted in 2010, uh, was the last time we hosted. Uh, and there's a lot of conveniences to being, you know, to, to meeting here in Nashville for those of us who are in the Presbytery. Um, but it's, uh, it's a mountain of work on the part of the Presbytery in advance. And so I'm not eager for us to host anytime soon. Although we do have, since 2010, we have this new convention center that I still haven't been inside of, but I hear good things. Okay, let's talk about this year's meeting. Uh, we met in Memphis this year, uh, June 12th to the 16th. This was the 50th General Assembly, uh, so a, uh, a Jubilee Assembly. Um, I served on the RPR, the Review of Pre Presbytery Records Committee this year, and Overtures uh, and was appointed as an assistant parliamentarian, which the guys have been giving me grief about. Um, your ruling elders this year were Jay Hollis and J.D. Stewart. And uh, so we, uh, the last few years, we've been setting records for attendance, uh, and that's, uh, it's not difficult to figure out why that is. Um, in the last three to five years, we've had a significant issue come up in the PCA where we had a teaching elder, a pastor in St. Louis by the name of Greg Johnson, 
who, uh, who came out as same-sex attracted uh, and, uh, and said that he was celibate. Uh, and so the way he talked about himself uh, upset quite a few people. There was a lot of concern that it was not appropriate for him to talk about himself and about his sin the way that he did. Uh, his church also was very active in a gathering in St. Louis called Revoice, which was, uh, existed. It was a, uh, an annual gathering conference that existed to, uh, to put forward what uh, became known as Side B Christianity, uh, which is, uh, and, and I don't want to misrepresent them, I, I think they would uh, agree with this description of themselves, those who hold this view. Uh, it's a view that says that, uh, that being same-sex attracted is not a sin, acting on it is, but that there are a lot of blessings and beautiful things that can be appreciated about being same-sex attracted. Uh, there are things that, and these, this is the language they were using themselves, that there are realities about love and friendship that heterosexual people cannot understand and so there's a dimension to the truth of love that, uh, that same-sex attracted are able to bring to our understanding, and it ought to be celebrated. Uh, that, as you might imagine, was deeply troubling uh, to many in the denomination. We attempted properly to get at this through our judicial system. Uh, and now, there's a, the, the way things work for us judicially is, uh, is that the only court that could hold Greg Johnson accountable was his presbytery. Not another presbytery, uh, not any session. Uh, the General Assembly, except for one, one mechanism, the General Assembly can't just march in there and do what they think ought to be done. And so if the presbytery won't do the right thing, then it's very, very difficult for anyone to do anything about it. His presbytery is the Missouri Presbytery, and, uh, and the Missouri Presbytery uh, received letters from other presbyteries and churches complaining about uh, the things that Greg was, was saying and teaching and the Revoice Conference and all the rest. Uh, and his presbytery took that up, investigated, and said that there was no wrongdoing. Um, and having done that, they took away the only mechanism that the assembly has to step in. Our rules say that if a, uh, if a presbytery refuses to act with respect to reports concerning a, a minister's um, uh, conduct, his teaching, if the presbytery refuses to act, then the assembly can assume original jurisdiction and try the case themselves. But the Missouri Presbytery, by definition, did not refuse to act. They investigated, and they said there's nothing here. And that means that the assembly's mechanism for stepping in, we couldn't step in. Uh, and so it was deeply frustrating for many in the denomination who didn't agree with the Presbytery's findings uh, and were concerned that, uh, that a man who believed and taught, as Greg Johnson believed and taught, should not be permitted. He's not qualified 
to serve as a minister in our denomination. That, that boiled for several years. Uh, one of the effects of that was that it, uh, our, our general assembly, as a percentage of those who could attend, is not well attended. Uh, we, for, for years, when, uh, until uh, four years ago, until three years ago, typical attendance at our assembly was 1,200. That's all the, the pastors and ruling elders in the, the denomination who would attend was 1,200. We have more than 5,000 teaching elders alone in the PCA. And teaching and ruling elders combined, the attendance at the assembly was an average of about 1,200 elders. So the assembly was not well attended. And as the assembly would gather each year and try to get at this somehow, uh, we kept failing. Everything we tried failed, amending the Constitution in order to, to find a way to get at this issue. It kept failing. And one of the results was that ruling elders in particular, conservative ruling elders, began to organize to encourage and enable other conservative ruling elders to attend the assembly. And so three years ago, we had a record attendance. Uh, in fact, so in 2019, uh, we had 1,652 commissioners. That was a record attendance up to that point. We didn't meet in 2020 because of COVID. In 2021, so 20, 2019 was 1,652. In 2021, we had 2,115 commissioners, a new record, and an increase of 28% over the, the previous assembly, which itself was a high record. In 2022, we had 2,385 commissioners, yet again a new record, improving on the previous record by 13%. Uh, this year was not a record, but it was, uh, it was in between the last two years. This year we had 2,250. Not only is the overall number increasing significantly, but, uh, but the, the uh, percentage of that number that is ruling elders has been increasing as well as ruling elders have become more organized. As the numbers have increased, the effect has been conservative. It's been confessional. Uh, and the, um, I, I can remember <clears throat> we use electronic devices to vote at the assembly, but we've only been doing that now for, I don't know, seven years or so. Uh, and I can remember back to the days when we, they would issue us cards that you would hold up, colored cards about this big, that you would hold up to vote. And, uh, and if the vote was close uh, and they had to count, you'd have you know, 1,200 commissioners standing up with floor clerks running around counting as quickly as they could. And it, we would consistently have divided votes where it was not unusual in a room with 1,200 men voting for the vote to be separated by 10 votes, which you know, between us mathematically suggests that there's no, we have no idea what the actual outcome was. The, 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 uh, the, um, what's the, the margin of error there is larger than 10 votes in a group that size. Uh, and so deeply divided. Our votes the last years have not been deeply divided. Uh, the, the votes have been overwhelmingly in a, what I would consider a more conservative confessional direction. 
Uh, and l this is largely because of the, the men who are showing up who until th three years ago were not showing up. So uh, we meet on Tuesday night. We're called to order, but then pretty quickly we, uh, we celebrate a worship service together. That worship service, uh, the, the preacher for that service is the outgoing moderator. Now, our moderator for the assembly every year goes, uh, it rotates between teaching and ruling elders. And when last year's assembly was moderated by a ruling elder, that ruling elder will often ask a teaching elder to preach for him. And that's what happened this year. John Bice was our ruling elder uh, moderator last year, and he asked uh, Randy Thompson, uh, a pastor in Mississippi, to preach the, the sermon. And he did a fantastic, what's that? Alabama. Yeah, or Alabama. Yeah, Tuscumbia. Tuscumbia, Alabama. Um, he did a fantastic job, uh, which is not always the case for that opening assembly sermon, but uh, we've, we've had some real doozies, but, uh, but Randy Thompson preached the gospel from, yeah, just, yeah, um, I'm not going to say that loud enough for the recording. Okay, um, when, the, when the worship service is over, we, uh, we reconvene as an assembly, and the very first thing we do is we elect a new moderator. It's a different guy every year. This year was a teaching elder year, and the moderator elected was Fred Greco. Uh, Fred is very Italian and very loud, and, uh, and he did a fantastic job this year. Uh, in fact, the, uh, on social media, in our PCA circles, they're still talking about what a great job he did. Uh, he's, he's gained all kinds of new nicknames, but uh, given how, how well he exerts control over the assembly and his Italian heritage, uh, my favorite nickname is the Mod Father. Um, Fred the Mod Father Greco. Uh, Fred was nominated by David Strain, the pastor of First Pres in Jackson. And uh, Charles McGowan, a member of our own presbytery, nominated uh, Randy Pope, who's a minister down in Atlanta. Uh, and Fred won over... Uh, Reverend Pope, 1,077 to 739. So uh, Fred did a fantastic job, and because he's one of my good friends, that's why I got pulled up uh, to be an assistant parliamentarian this year. So. That's a big deal. That was cool. It was fun. Being, you're not like one of a hundred. You're one of three. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. 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 It was, it was, it was a lot of fun. There's, uh, there's two men who serve as assistant parliamentarians and have probably since I was in diapers, uh, who, who know what they're doing, are very good at it, and, uh, and so it was, it was a lot of fun to get to sit with them and, uh, and participate in that and, and learn some of the ropes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. It was, uh, it was a good time being up there, though. Okay, as soon as we get uh, a new moderator and we thank the, the outgoing moderator uh, and he appoints, you know, parliamentarians and all that stuff, then, uh, then the next thing we do is a report from the stated clerk of the General Assembly. And so our stated clerk got up and gave his report. There's a lot in his report, but the main thing I want to hit is just some of the numbers quickly. We have 88 presbyteries in the PCA, that's flat. We've had 88 presbyteries for at least five years now. Uh, our churches, the number of churches is growing once again. As you would imagine during COVID, it slowed down considerably. We have 1,627 congregations in the PCA. 
Uh, we have over 300 mission churches, uh, that is church plants in the PCA right now. Uh, there are over 5,000 ruling elders. We have over 700 candidates, that's men who believe they're called to ministry, who are in the process of seminary and exams and all the rest. Uh, we have uh, almost 200 licentiates, uh, that's um, either men who are again in process and they've been licensed to preach the gospel. Sometimes, though, that's ruling elders uh, who are not moving towards being a pastor, but they're licensed to preach because they may be in a church where it's difficult to, uh, to retain a minister, but they need somebody who can preach regularly. Um, in 2022, there were over 5,000 professions of faith by children in our denomination, more than 5,000 professions of faith by adults in our denomination. Uh, our denomination uh, broke the 300,000 member mark this year. It's not the first time we've had 300,000, but we, uh, again, took a slight dip during COVID, and now we're, uh, we're back up at 301,000. Uh, there are over 83,000 non-communicant members, so an overwhelming majority of that is children who have not yet been admitted to the table. And uh, all of that together, our total membership is 390,000. So we're approaching 400,000 members in the PCA. Uh, that's a lot of people, but as denominations go, especially historic denominations, mainline denominations in the, uh, the United States, it's relatively small. So it is the biggest of the conservative reformed denominations uh, in the, uh, the U.S., um, yeah, I think that's it on statistics. Okay, any questions before I move on? Yeah. I don't. No, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, okay. We're running out of time, but we have a picnic, so I'm going to try not to abuse this, but I, we do need to push through the substance of the, the meeting this year. Uh, and so there are, so last year, the assembly approved a series of amendments to our BCO. The way that we have to do this then is over the course of this last year, all of the presbyteries vote to ratify those amendments and you have to get two-thirds of the presbyteries to, in order for an amendment to be ratified. All ratified amendments then have to come back to us at the next General Assembly to be voted on again, and they, they have to get a simple majority. So simple majority, two-thirds of the presbyteries ratifying simple majority. When that happens, the amendment is in effect, right? It's approved, it's done. So one of the things we had to do at the assembly this year is take up last year's amendments. There were 12 of them. We're not going to go through, you know, one at a time on all of them. Uh, of the 12 amendments that were sent to the presbyteries, two did not get ratified. The rest did, and all of them were approved at the assembly this year. Quickly running through some of the issues. Again, we talked about same-sex attraction and Greg Johnson. The two amendments that did not get ratified, though they came close, were both related to this issue, and that was to amend our book of church order to disqualify from office men describing themselves as homosexual. That's one amendment that was approved last year but didn't get ratified this year by the Presbyteries. Now, that may sound uh, 
upsetting. You, you may say, how in the world could our denomination not ratify that? But I'll, I'll let you know, I was not in favor of this amendment. It was in the wrong place in our Constitution. The language of the amendment was actually not helpful. Uh, it was not going to accomplish what we intended for it to accomplish. So I was not in favor of it at the assembly. I didn't vote for it in our presbytery, and it didn't get through. And we, we did better work this year, we'll talk about in a minute. We did, however, uh, successfully amend our Constitution with respect to the qualifications for church office. We strengthened those qualifications uh, with respect to the language of sexual uh, purity uh, related to same-sex attraction and all of the other sexual sins. Uh, and we, uh, we added paragraphs to the requirements for ordination as well. And so we did strengthen our, our BCO this year. The other item that did not pass under this subject was, uh, was we tried to change the mechanism by which the assembly can assume original jurisdiction from a presbytery uh, in order to make it easier for the assembly to get in there and do that. That failed. Uh, we tried again this year, and it failed again. It's a very difficult uh, thing to work through, um, and there, there are some people very much opposed to making that easier. Um, Another issue that is a hot issue for us in the denomination right now, we formed a committee, a study committee a couple of years ago uh, to look into abuse, all kinds of abuse, particularly though uh, abuse on the part of church leadership, abusing staff members, abusing church members, and that can be, all again, all kinds of abuse, any kind of thing you can imagine under abuse. They came back and gave us uh, their report. There's a lot of, of good things in that report. They gave us that report last year. They were not allowed to make recommendations to amend our, our Book of Church order, but they were allowed to make recommendations for how it might be amended if anybody was so uh, convicted. Those amendments then have begun to, to come to us and one was an amendment last year that was passed, ratified, and passed again this year to allow um, victim protection provisions in our Book of Church order. In other words, uh, you understand that one of the things that's difficult about abuse when a court is trying to adjudicate it is placing the abused person in front of the person who abused them uh, and, and asking them to, uh, to testify and even potentially be subject to cross-examination by their abuser. That's problematic, but we also can't just say, nope, don't have to do that, uh, because now the rights of the accused may be diminished. So it's, it's a difficult issue, but we, we did, I think, wisely amend our Book of Church order to allow some of those protections. I want to make sure you hear this. If you, some of you I know follow denominational matters, you're out there on social media, and one of the narratives on social media right now is that the PCA is continually refusing to take care of abuse victims. And that is a lie. It's an absolute lie. And part of showing you it's a lie is showing you that we actually did this year approve a measure to help protect abuse victims. There are other measures that have come to us that we haven't approved. They weren't good measures. They may come back to us again in a better form, and we may approve that form. Right? We'll talk about that when we get to this year's overtures. Uh, some other overtures, uh, final amendments that were approved and are done. Um, 
just kind of looking through these. Um, yeah, I don't know that any, any of these are important enough for me to bring up. Um, so if there's one that you knew about that you're particularly curious about, you can ask. But um, these, these other amendments, are, they're all important, but probably not uh, enough to bring them up this morning. Yeah, and, and if you want it, I'm happy to save you the trouble of trying to find it. Just ask me. I'll send you anything you'd like. Let me move quickly through several of the other committees. The Review of Presbytery Records Committee uh, that I talked about earlier, there was one matter in particular that was really important. When we met as a committee this year, we discovered in the minutes of the uh, New York Metro Presbytery that a, uh, a church had invited an Episcopalian woman minister, a, you know, a supposed reverend, to preach their morning service. Uh, they tried to avoid trouble by referring to it as a Bible study rather than a sermon, but it was on Sunday morning in corporate worship. It was the only delivery of the word in worship, and it was actually in line with the series they were preaching. She picked up the next text that their preacher had left off at the, next, the previous Sunday, and he picked up where she left off the Sunday after. It went onto their website, labeled as a sermon. Uh, so, well, yeah, they, they, so they, they also, they serve communion weekly. When this became, when the Presbytery became aware of this, they formed a committee to investigate, appropriate. The committee investigated and said, uh, and they, the church admitted, yeah, this is what happened, but we don't consider that the preaching of the word, so we don't think we did anything wrong. And the presbytery said, well, if that wasn't the preaching of the word, then why did you celebrate communion? Because you're not allowed to celebrate communion unless the word is preached. And by your own confession, there was no word preached. So either the word was preached, which would not be okay, or it wasn't preached, that wouldn't be okay. The church's response to this inquiry was, oh, we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper without the preaching of the word all the time. So, the, uh, the Presbytery, you know, part of their, investiga their, their investigation was all included in their minutes. That's how we, the Review of Presbytery Records, came to be aware of this. The committee reported to the Presbytery their findings, including the fact that the minister at this church doesn't believe he did anything wrong. And the Presbytery decided that they didn't need to do anything about this. So the Presbytery discovered all of these things. It was in writing. These, the facts I've given you are the facts as the Presbytery themselves recorded them. Uh, no one is disputing the facts, and the Presbytery did nothing. So ordinarily, what we would do is we would cite the Presbytery with an exception of substance, and they would have the following year to explain themselves to us. RPR believed that this was so egregious that we utilized a paragraph in our book of church order, it's called a 40-5 citation, where we, did not, we skipped the back and forth for the next two or three years and immediately cited them to appear to the SJC to explain themselves. Now, the RPR only makes recommendations. That was our recommendation to the assembly. It was hotly debated on the floor. New York Metro begged the assembly to let them fix this without being cited, and the assembly said no. Uh, you are cited. The assembly voted 
uh, overwhelmingly, it was 1,447 to 161 to cite them to appear. So New York Metro this year will be forced to cite uh, or to appear before the SJC. I think they're going to fix it, um, but they should have fixed it when they found it the first time. Uh, Reform University Fellowship has a new affiliation agreement. The national, right, that, that, that permanent committee for RUF, um, there's a lot of administrative and legal and tax implications with what they do. And so every RUF campus ministry has an affiliation agreement with the permanent committee. Uh, and it describes their relationship. Uh, RUF, uh, over the past year, came to presbyteries and said, we we've discovered that there is a problem uh, with serious implications with our affiliation agreement. We have to fix it. We've fixed it, and so you need to sign this new affiliation agreement or you can't be affiliated with RUF anymore. But their new affiliation agreement was never reported to the assembly, never approved by the assembly, and the effect of that new agreement is that Presbytery no longer has the, the right to call RUF ministers or dismiss them. They're imposed on us by the permanent committee. That's deeply problematic, right? The Presbytery is the one who holds all of the calls of the ministers ministering in her bounds. And to have ministers imposed on us as a presbytery, is, that's Methodist. That's not Presbyterian. It's not how we function. I'm actually deeply sympathetic to RUF in as much as I believe that they did discover a real problem and that I, I think in good faith they were trying to fix the problem. But what we have is a civil problem and an ecclesial problem and what RUF has done is said, we're going to let the civil trump the ecclesial. And I think they did a poor job. That's, that's my opinion. I don't think that the civil ought to trump the ecclesial. We do need to address the civil problem. Where all that uh, came to rest this year is that the, uh, the affiliation agreement is going to be allowed to continue for the next calendar year. But RUF must bring the new affiliation agreement, a new affiliation agreement, to us next year for our approval. And they're on notice that the new one they're using now is not going to be okay. If they bring us the current new affiliation agreement, it's going to be a fight on the floor of the assembly. Presbyterians are not happy about this. I'm hoping that they will work harder to come up with a good solution that addresses both the civil and the ecclesial concerns. Uh, the Standing Judicial Commission. This is another thing that if you follow PCA scuttlebutt in social media, uh, there was a minister accused of, uh, of sexual impropriety, not in our presbytery. Uh, it became very public. Uh, it was a mess for, for a couple of years. And finally, in an unusual, I mean, this doesn't happen often, SJC received the case not as a court of appeal, but as an original jurisdiction. They tried the case from scratch. Uh, the result was not only were the accusations against the minister not proven, they were actually disproven. And he was found, uh, the SJC, which is 24 members, unanimously found the man not guilty. 
Uh, and again, I wanna, I've, I've actually read the, the report of the SJC. I'm not reporting what somebody else reported to me. They say very clearly in there, not only were the charges not sustained, they were actually disproven by the evidence. The man was falsely accused. There was a vendetta against him by his accusers. The man's not in ministry anymore. He didn't survive this uh, vocationally. Um, the unanimous, non, uh, not guilty verdict resulted in an explosion on the part of the community out there that is rightly, deeply concerned about abuse victims, but that has a mode of guilty until proven innocent. And in this case, even proven innocent wasn't good enough for them. And so the word on the street is that the PCA is not a safe place, that uh, you'll be abused in the PCA and there will be no recourse for you if you're abused. The PCA doesn't care about abuse victims. We're just a good old boy club and that this SJC result is proof of that. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's, it's actually proof of the opposite. And so um, if you do come across those rumors, I don't want you to be concerned. Please feel free to, to reach out to me and um, I'm happy to encourage you. Uh, I don't believe we are a perfect denomination. I believe, I think it would be absurd to deny that abuse happens in the PCA. All different kinds of abuse. Um, I think it would be absurd to deny that where that abuse is caught, that there aren't some who are motivated to cover it up. But as a denomination, we are not okay with that. And we are working with, with the best that we have uh, according to the best wisdom that we have to make this a, a denomination that is safe and where violations do occur, that those who have violated these things, who have been abusers, can be brought to justice. We're not interested in hiding it. Um, but we're also not going to throw off uh, all wisdom with respect to our judicial system in protecting the rights of the accused. Um, we, we're not going to do that. We're going to continue to ensure that the rights of the accused are protected according to, to the basic common law basis that has gone back for centuries. We're not gonna change that. So, um, the nominating committee, I'm just gonna say very pleased here. Our permanent committees and agencies are increasingly being uh, uh, filled with men that I think are, are excellent men and um, I'm very thankful for that. Okay, I know we're over, but I'm, I'm to the last thing here, which is our Overtures Committee report. So last year we amended the Constitution, and that went through ratification, and we voted again this year. This year we voted on amendments, uh, and those which were approved will go through a ratification process, and I'll be reporting to you next year on the outcome of those things. We had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight overtures this year, that asked us to amend the Constitution in some way related to the abuse issue. One was uh, requiring criminal background checks. We, uh, we can answer yes. We can answer yes, but amend the, the language. We can answer no, we're not going to do that. Or if we think it's, a, it's on the right track, but it's just not ready yet. They haven't, it hasn't been fashioned quite well enough, and we're not going to do the work of perfecting it at the assembly, we can refer it back to the presbytery that sent it up. When we refer back, rather than just saying no, 
We're encouraging the presbytery. Keep working on this. We, we'd like to hear from you again. But we just didn't think this was ready to be a part of our Constitution. Requiring criminal background checks for all ministers and officer candidates was referred back this year. It wasn't quite ready uh, in the form that it was presented. Uh, two overtures were looking at denying professional lawyers the right to serve in our ecclesial trials. We've got members in the PCA who are lawyers. And in the session and presbytery and the assembly, we conduct trials, right? This was trying to change our rules to say, if you're a lawyer, you're not allowed to serve in that process. It's not fair. The idea is that if I'm accused and I can get a good lawyer, right, well, there is a rule that you're not allowed to go hire an attorney to serve in our courts. But we don't have a rule that says you can't serve if you're an attorney. This was trying to change that rule. There was really no heart for this. Uh, in part, it, it suffers from a, a lack of definition. Um, I mean, it may sound obvious, an attorney, but when you ask a question, what is an attorney, right? <laughs> well, attorneys are going to, uh, to be the ones that you have to turn to to define that, and it's a mess. Uh, you know, are they, is it those who have been to law school? Is it those who have passed the bar? If they've passed the bar, do they need to be current? Uh, what if they've been disbarred? Are they still allowed to do this? What if they're not serving as an attorney professionally? But they went to law school and they took the bar, so they're legally allowed to serve. I mean, there's just all kinds of questions about who's being ruled out here and why. Uh, so we answered that in the negative. Um, we are not, we do not allow anyone to serve as a witness in our trials that cannot affirm the existence of a God or an afterlife with, tri with, uh, with rewards and consequences. If you don't believe in those things, so that doesn't mean you have to be a Christian. It just means, essentially, it rules out atheists. If you're an atheist, you can't testify in our courts. That's actually a really, really old rule. Not only in the church, it used to be true in common right, in civil law, going back, you know, centuries, if you didn't believe in God, you weren't acceptable as a witness. Uh, that holds still in our polity, and there was an overture to change that, to say, nope, anybody can be a witness, and uh, that was so hotly contested, we received a minority report, debated it for an hour on the floor of the assembly, but it didn't pass. We answered in the negative. We're not going to allow atheists to testify as witnesses in our courts. Uh, require expedited and conflict-free investigations of cases involving moral failure. Um, <clears throat> the idea here is to force us to move quickly to adjudicate accusations uh, rather than uh, these things unfolding over, uh, over a careful process. The problem with this overture, the way it was crafted, is that it uh, that it um, it really ran afoul of the rights of the accused? We referred it back. We didn't say no under no circumstances. Don't even bother bringing it back. We just said this is not going to be okay this way. Keep working on it. Were you just giving me a time signal? Yeah, I've got some very restless ones uh, ready for this to be uh, wrapped up. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm almost done. Um, so we referred that back. Um, and then two other overtures I won't get into the detail on, uh, one of which we affirmed, 
and the other one we also referred back. So you're going to hear on social media that we, uh, we said no to all the overtures that would have helped abuse victims, and that's not true. We said no to a couple of them. We referred most of them back, and we affirmed one. So we are continually moving forward with respect to perfecting our Constitution uh, in order to protect abuse victims. We're just not going to be bullied into doing it poorly. Um, with respect to the Greg Johnson issue, same-sex attraction, all of that, we, uh, we also uh, we, get, we put better language in our Book of Church order um, to, uh, to, again, talk about the, the, the standards for chastity and sexual purity and the way a minister describes himself. That was affirmed. It'll be hopefully ratified this year, voted on next year. We tried again to change the way we assume original jurisdiction, and that failed. Um, we, uh, we had an overture to disallow exhortation, preaching, or teaching by women in worship. We referred that back, uh, not because we're okay with that, but because the way it was styled was, it went too far. Um, I, the little summary I just gave you said in worship, but the overture itself, it, the way the overture itself was worded, if, if I were to show up on Tuesday nights to the Nancy Guthrie Bible study and stand in the back as a minister, then we would all be in violation of the overture the way it was worded. If Nancy was speaking at a conference and the, man, uh, the person speaking after her was a man and it was a woman's conference, there would not be any men in the room allowed and the next speaker would also not be allowed in the room until Nancy stopped speaking. It just went way too far. Uh, we do have a bit of a problem with this in the denomination. The overture is, uh, is in the right direction, but it needed a great deal of perfection. We referred it back. We also have a problem in the PCA with churches giving ordained titles to people who aren't ordained. So like calling uh, a man a youth pastor, right? He's not a pastor. He's not ordained and should not be referred to as a youth pastor, uh, we have uh, women in the denomination referred to as women's pastors. Um, we have uh, women referred to as deacons in the church uh, who are not ordained, but they just have that title. So we passed an overture this year uh, that says you're not allowed to do that. If it gets all the way through the process, that will change in our denomination. Uh, okay, a couple other quick hits, and I'm done. We'll close. Um, <clears throat> We empowered the moderator to form a commission to write a letter to the federal and state governments condemning the practice of surgical and medical gender reassignment, especially for minors. Uh, you can go find the text for that online. Uh, a, a session sent us an overture asking us to affirm racial reconciliation but reject critical race theory. And we answered that in the negative, not because we're, we're happy to embrace critical race theory, uh, it's just not normal for us to accept the work of a session and make it the work of the entire assembly. We ought to instead create a study committee to do better work on that. So we said no. Last thing is um, we, uh, when we started as a denomination, the first thing we did is write a letter, and we sent that letter to the PCUS, which was the mothership we were leaving and, and forming a new denomination from. And that letter said, we are committed to the authority of the word of God and other things. It was called a letter to all nations, and, uh, and it was addressed from a loving daughter to a prodigal mother. 
And on our 50th anniversary, we republished that letter and sent it to the PCUSA. And so um, some were concerned that that was a bit of a stick in the eye, but in the end it prevailed, and so uh, that letter is going out. Next year we will meet in Richmond, Virginia, June 10th through the 14th for General Assembly, and the, the work of, of that assembly will, will begin in the spring as committees begin to meet. So, okay, I'm happy to answer any questions uh, during the... Uh, Yeah, that's, that's an important note. Yeah, Greg Johnson and Memorial Prez are no longer a part of the PCA. I don't celebrate that. would much rather uh, Greg, the other ministers at that church, and the session had uh, repented of their error and been restored to fellowship in the PCA. Uh, but absent that, this was the unfortunate but right outcome. And so they are no longer uh, subject to the authority of the PCA. Okay, uh, let me close in prayer. Fathers, we go to lunch now. We thank you for the food that you've provided and the fellowship that's ours. Uh, and we rejoice that that fellowship, though it may include uh, common interests, is a fellowship rooted in the person of Jesus Christ and his finished work and our common interest in it. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.